Got to make sure your peas don't pop. <laughs> Oh, a few peas. Did you see me? So what's some yeah. peas? Peter Pepper picked a pop of pepper. What is it? Peter, Peter Piper picked a Peter Piper picked a pe- 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 Peter Piper on the rain on the pleasant party of people <laughs> who were passing popcorn to popcorn, each other. There you go. <laughs> Welcome to another episode of Coming Up Next Friends. This week's interview is with a woman who's been in the industry for over 35 years. Uh, you may know her from her time in the 90s, if you're a 90s kid, on Spellbinder. Uh, she's recently been, or in, probably still, is on tour with the, uh, the musical version of Strictly Ballroom. This week's guest on Coming Up Next is Heather Mitchell. Now, before we get to the interview, I just wanted to take a moment to uh, to say thank you to all of those who reached out on Facebook and, and gave some feedback on things that you would uh, that you'd like to hear in the future. I had um, a consistent piece of feedback seemed to be about expanding beyond uh, people just in uh, in the entertainment industry and understanding why others do what they do, uh, and which timed out well because we had Dr. Paul Harrison, a consumer psychologist, on a few weeks ago. So I will endeavor to be bringing you more of that kind of flavor tied in with uh, my peers and colleagues and people that I'm meeting for the very first time, like Heather, that you're about to hear. So thank you to everyone who uh, who did give feedback. Uh, we had uh, Ashley Weidner in uh, in Melbourne, uh, Nick Volks, Dion Shazaraza Ding Dong, uh, and uh, a uh, Belinda Totino who wrote in... Uh, wanting someone to interview me. So, uh, yeah, I, I guess I just need to find someone who can ramble as well as I can, who might want to uh, interview me. Who knows, it could even be the you. Or not, I don't know. But we'll find out. But if you uh, if you are listening and you think that you've uh, you've got a great idea to help in the evolution of coming up next, please jump on uh, jump on the Facebook page, which is facebook.com/cunpodcast, or you can Twitter me at a a e m a r k s, and I will endeavour to respond and read out your name in a slightly ambiguous tone. And stick around till the end of the show, because that's when I will be announcing who has won the coming up next hockey jersey. But moving on to this week's guest, I am so delighted to, uh, to have Heather come and, uh, and jump in the studio with me. My brother managed to keep some decorum for this one. And, uh, and this was actually the first time I'd met Heather. Well, we actually established that we had met many years ago, crewing on a film together um, called the wedding party um well i was crewing she was acting but semantics aside it's a really beautiful and insightful chat with a woman who has had just an amazing career over the last 35 years and will continue to into the future so please give a warm coming up next welcome to heather mitchell Just amazing. I've said tremendous several times now to describe people. I'll say absolutely a lot and that'll <laughs> drive you mad. The um And we'll settle on magnificent in the magnificent middle. Magnificent and stupendous. Yeah. The um 
I have to say, just being in Melbourne here, um, I've only been here what, nearly eight months, but oh gee, it's wonderful. There's so mm. much fantastic work happening in Melbourne. I think mm. it's wonderful. There is a lot going on. Really. Um, and there's a I say there's a lot of opportunity. It's not a lot of opportunity, but people are I, making opportunities. Yeah, I think if you're if you're willing to put in the work for you mm. on your own and not wait for the telephone to ring, yeah, which is kind of always the way that I've tried to approach work. I mean, I went to film school as an actor, wanting to learn how to make films because I was like, if no one's going to give me a job, I'm going to make my own fucking yeah. jobs. Yeah. Sorry, I swear a bit on this as well. Funnily enough, I'm okay with swearing. It's okay. Cool. I'll try to refrain, but... <laughs> you never know, you know. You... No, please. Uh, no, we've been very careful because we've got kids in the show at the moment and we're not allowed to... You've got to be very careful, no swearing and mm. no inappropriate language and no inappropriate... And we're constantly having to... <laughs> Pull yourself up. We're not supposed to touch them either, or, which is good, you know, but it's hard not to want to hug them sometimes. And... <laughs> mm. There must have been quite an evolution because uh, you've been... What uh, in the, in that sort of period of uh, thirty five years, there would have been such an evolution, even in the way that you can behave around children on set or in a theater, in a theatrical production. Oh, most definitely, and I, I think I mean it's a very tender topic, obviously. Mm. Um, and I mean, I think thank goodness there are such uh, so many more strict rules around kids now. But um, it was very different mm. when I think back to the eighties, and not just with children, but just generally on a film set. A very different approach and attitude, and mm. uh, uh, the feeling of people. I think felt um, they had an enormous freedom to bring onto a set whatever they needed for the day, yeah. ready to get them through it. It's kind of like the Wild West. <laughs> it was a bit, and uh, it was very male dominated as well. And um, I think it's a lot healthier now, a lot. And uh, and I think it's very very important, obviously, that children are, are you know looked after and protected. And I was just saying that, you know, on Strictly Ballroom that I'm doing at the moment, there's eight children, you know, ranging from, I think, around 11 to 14, 15 years old even. I'm not that old, 14. And um, they're sensational and so professional. And so we really take the lead from them because they've been taught um, by the people who are looking after them on the set, you know, what is acceptable behaviour and what's not. And so we really, as adults, take the lead from them and and uh there's a great respect and mm. um between us all it's wonderful mm. and great affection as well but the affection is obviously not a physical affection but a, a great you know respect and love for each other it's mm. wonderful in fact we had a farewell last night to the kids which was a very emotional night because we're losing the melbourne kids and we're going up to brisbane and um they're just beautiful it's gorgeous I'm sitting uh, today joined in the um, ramble room by... <laughs> the bedroom. The what? The bedroom. The bedroom. The, the, <laughs> the boudoir of my brother um, by Heather Mitchell. I am so grateful for um, having you in here and um, having your 35 plus years of experience <laughs> to pick your brain and, and to, I uh, guess, understand and... and learn and um track your journey through this industry i mean um this show has kind of evolved in in a um in its own way to a point now where it's almost unrecognizable from where i started and this is only sort of 14 episodes in 
um, you would experience that on quite a profound level, I'm sure. I mean, you've been doing Strictly Ballroom now for... It'll be two years, two really. Two years, wow. Well, since the rehearsals began, anyway, two years when we finish in Brisbane, which is in about six weeks. Mm, and so that's the end of the show? That'll be the, that'll be the end of the Australian show. And, I mean, I hope for them that they'll get productions done in, you know, London and wherever else. But that's definitely it for us and for the Australian cast and, mm. and our team. But, yeah, it's been um, an amazing experience. I'll use the word amazing once and then I'll try not to use it again. <laughs> but it's... Um, I have loved every minute of it yeah. and I've never done a musical before so it was completely unexpected for me uh, to be doing this and it has been one of the greatest joys I've had really in terms of working with people mm. and the, and the uh, incredible respect I have for particularly the people who are the professional dancers and singers um, who are also actors but that's uh, the, 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 the core of what they do in this production. And um, they're just incredible, their dedication and the threshold of pain that they <laughs> put up with every performance and the hours that we're working. I mean, we work such uh, so many more hours than you do in a straight drama. And it's been just amazing. So many people involved and the musicians and the crew and the you know, the publicity departments and everything. Just amazing. Mm. What is a regular day, like in terms of those hours, just for people who may not Well, we do eight shows a week, which is normal. So, um, but that includes a Sunday, two on the weekend. Some musicals, apparently they do, they do four on a weekend and then they get the Tuesday night off. So we've been generally doing, we do eight shows a week. But within that, because you have your understudies and your swings and people go off sick and people have scheduled days off, you go in and you re-rehearse constantly with the the new people who are taking the role. So, and at the hour call every night, you'll always have a rehearsal at the hour call. But generally, a lot of the cast are in there every Tuesday rehearsing, every Thursday rehearsing, and some Fridays rehearsing, wow. plus the eight shows a week. Um, and then this past week, we, I think we did 11 shows this week, not all to the public, but okay, we did 11 hell. shows getting the new kids rehearsed in. Um, then there's a lot of publicity calls. There's, um, but everyone does it with great generosity and warmth, and um, you know it's fantastic. Mm. And being a new show as well, because there wasn't a, what they call the Bible, which is the the blueprint of the show. Which when you're doing a well-known show like um, you know Wizard of Oz or, or, or Wicked or a franchise um, show, a franchise show, then you step in your cast and you fulfil the requirements of that that show which has been done many 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 times before in this case a brand new show there was no script except the film script that had to be adapted and changed along the way it had to be you know baz had his visions for it some which were fulfilled some which weren't um it just kept developing and developing and really i would say it wasn't really till a few weeks into melbourne or probably a couple of months even that we had the finished kind of australian product and really now it's at its tightest and I think Brisbane will be the, you know, the benefactors of probably the show that was <laughs> we wished we'd been doing, you know, months and months ago, particularly in Sydney. But that's been such a privilege to be part of that evolution. Like that's what's been so exciting for mm. me is to be part of that, you know, gradual, gradual reworking, reworking. And um, it's been really exciting. How early on in the 
process would you were you brought in was the show already uh ready to go no 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 there was seriously just uh the film script and there was uh obviously pieces of music were composed and other um composers had been brought on like sia there's a song from sia's sia and um who'd written a song um eddie perfect was involved um but then so the music was very much underway but even so um the opening was completely thrown out after sydney and a whole new opening began a whole new number a whole new music was involved and through rehearsal you know baz was constantly sort of walking and saying okay today we're going to try this we're going to try that we're going to try this we're going to try that and so we were all you know excitedly trying anything he threw at us mm. um and just recently the one of the assistant directors has been posting just on our sort of private websites rehearsals um videos from rehearsals and we're just laughing because <laughs> we can't recognize much sure. of what we did in rehearsal wow. so uh you know it's um a constantly changing thing mm. uh what so was, yeah what was baz like to uh oh work i love under? baz he's just you've worked with him a few times yeah no not really i've worked with him on uh, gatsby but i can't say i've worked really closely with baz before um but he's just his enthusiasm his uh his incredible desire to make something he's just got such a passionate desire to make something um that for the people for people to enjoy mm. I mean, he genuinely wants people to have a good time and i think that it's simply the constraints um if he had four months to do it you know, because he wants, and understandably, anyone who's in a creative process wants to change things, see how they're working, and then move somewhere else or go in a different direction. But there isn't the luxury to do that. Mm. So decisions had to be made quickly, and and so we just don't have the money or the resources to do that. I think if it was uh, up to him and was given his, you know, luxury to do that, then it would have been a very long rehearsal, mm. and we probably would have explored all sorts of things that we haven't been able to. But he was, uh, from an actor's point of view, I think all the actors just felt uh, thrilled to be working with him. He was, um, when he's in the room with you, he's 100% in the room with you. I think when he leaves that room, I don't know what goes on. Mm. You know, but when he's in the room, he is absolutely present and there and working. Mm. You know? So um, it was great. And what's it like as an actor to be handed a, a two-year contract? Well, I didn't know it was a two-year... Oh, did we know it was a two-year contract? I think it was st that was still evolving. But look, okay. it was obviously from... Not that that was my first thought by any means, but now I look back and think, wow, did I even realise how fortunate I was to be uh, getting involved in something that was going to have some regular income coming in because mm. anyone in this industry knows how, uh, you know, how difficult it is to make money in this industry just to stay alive and... Yep. I, I started a podcast to, <laughs> to try and figure it to out. To do this, to try and figure it out. <laughs> so I'm very aware. I mean, I'm and I'm not exaggerating. I'm grateful every day, every day that I'm actually getting paid to do this because I'm enjoying it so much. Mm. Um, but extremely grateful to have that income. Um, and it's very interesting working with people who work mainly in theater, in um, musical theatre, how they're accustomed to getting that. So regularly they go from musical to musical where they assume that they'll get a, a reasonable length of a run mm. and they're you know from three months ago they were all beginning to panic oh, i haven't got anything lined up i haven't got anything i'm thinking i never even 
consider that until like two weeks, <laughs> 10 days before the job finishes. Yeah. So, but I understand that now when you're accustomed to that feeling. But um, no, my initial thing was just uh, thrilled to have that opportunity to explore an area that I have never done before. But also because it's a film that I really loved. Mm. And, uh, and also just really valued and loved the performances in it. And I haven't watched the film since before I went for an audition. And we were, as a cast, we're just saying the other day, you know, when we're in Brisbane towards the end of the run, it'd be great to all sit down and watch together. And um, But you don't want to when you're working no. on a piece. You know, it's, Could taint your performance or your interpretation. Well, not taint it, but make, make you feel neurotic that you're not doing as good a job. <laughs> <laughs> so, but, you know, it's always better, I think, to live within the piece and try not to to um, have outward mm. uh, influences once you're in it of the original piece anyway. Sure. And how have you found, I guess, from um, an artistic or an expressive point of view, doing this one character for so, for such a long kind of period of time Does it, and, and doing, I guess, the same show, even though it changes every night and it's going to evolve and each night will be different? What there would be a certain challenge in maintaining an enthusiasm and and a lust for that. Well, I haven't once struggled with enthusiasm. Mm. Not once. Not. I don't think I'm going into work. I think I'm going into the theatre. Um, I honestly have not ever thought. Oh, I don't feel like doing it tonight. Uh, I fractured my toe a few months ago, and a couple of times I thought, "Whoa, the pain is getting a bit much." But apart from that. I never want to miss a show. In terms of playing the character for that length of time, I just love the character. I love Shirley Hastings and love all the other characters. It's it's bizarre. I think that the challenge is simply, um, of course, honouring the piece and making sure that the notes that are the directors who are working for Baz give fantastic notes. So it's con- it's with any work you do, just wanting to be reminded constantly of you know what the story is telling and what you're trying to do and the life and deathness of mm. a ballroom and it is such a life and death situation ballroom dancing mm. <laughs> for the people who are in who are in it so the, i think what's easy about it is the stakes in the show are so high for the characters the characters have such strong desires and that kind of makes it very easy for an actor that if you commit to those needs that that character has it does so much for you. And and I think also being music, anything that involves music, that also does an enormous amount for you. So you really just, I think the challenge is to remain really present and listening and all those acting skills which are required anyway, but it is just being absolutely there, never dropping the ball, just keeping it. And it's for the audience. It's always reminding yourself always that it's for the audience and obviously doing a show which we had a packed house last night and you do feel by the time you sing love is in the air the audience are just feeling full of love mm. you know and that's that in itself is just you just walk out and you can't walk out but feel happy you know that even if i'm sure some people hate it and some people wish it would be over and some people are asleep <laughs> there's always people who don't yeah. enjoy it's the nature stuff. of art. it's the nature of it and it's fine and but it's um, the people who do and the people who come up on stage afterwards and say, oh, I just love that. And, you know, I look out to an audience every night and think there's someone out there who, you know, this could be the last show they ever see. 
um, someone who this is the first thing they've ever seen, someone who's on a date and they want to hope that the person they're sitting with is having a good time. Um, there's someone there with a child or someone, you know, I just always try and imagine mm. who you're spending the night with or who you're going to spend the next few hours with and what you can offer them. That's mm. all. And that makes it easy. Yeah, because then it's never about you. It's never about you. And it should never be about you. And I think that's the key for me for that always turns things away from being work is you always think about what can you offer um, to anything, not what is it going to do for me. And if you take that sort of line of thinking, then you usually find a lot of pleasure in everything, mm. I think. Yeah, I think so too, because then you're sort of stepping outside of yourself. Mm. And then opportunities happen. Mm. You know? And nothing, you don't take anything personally because it's not yeah, about Yeah, and I you. think it's that whole thing of you take your job seriously, but don't take yourself too seriously. Mm. And, and um, generally... You can have a good time. Yeah. <laughs> <You know? laughs> so, might t- yeah, I'd like to track back yeah. and not get tongue-tied. Um, <laughs> this show is just a, a big tangent of me. Yeah, yeah. On a on a thought train somewhere. Um, you studied at NIDA. Mm-hmm. Uh, I guess that would have been more than thirty-five years ago. I left in 1980, so I was there from... So it was exactly 35 years ago. back three years, that's... Um, Late 70s. What was your... What was it that compelled you to undertake a, um, uh, an undergraduate degree or a... I'm not even... Is it an undergraduate degree? Oh, it's changing all the time what it is. Yeah. Yes, I believe it is. What compelled back you to go to NIDA? it was a diploma. Right. It was a diploma, but I certainly wasn't after the, after the diploma, which I don't think I've even got. <laughs> I don't think I've picked it up. But, um, Still waiting for you. Look, I was brought up in the country after travelling a lot as a child, and um, I didn't get exposed to much theatre. Um, and the films, we didn't have a television until I was about... 10 or 11 or 12 even um so i must say my first i think like so many kids i just loved playing Mm. (laughs) dress-ups and telling stories and doing all those things that come so easily when you're a child and um and i think my parents certainly never ever thought of you know she'd be terrific as an actress or something it was never in their minds at all and it certainly wasn't in mine I didn't know that acting was a career. I had no idea. Um, but I remember distinctly my mother becoming involved in a um, one of those country uh, discussion group things where you could send away to the university through the University of Sydney and she did, a box was delivered to our place and I remember wondering what was in the box and she opened it. It was all these plays. They were studying oh, Austra- wow. uh, American drama of the 50s. And I remember just looking at all these books and pulling them out and just started reading I think the first thing was William Inge's play, Dark at the Top of the Stairs. Oh, yeah. And I read this play and I remember thinking, wow, this is, wow, this is so interesting. And I loved the way it was written, like characters, were, people were talking rather than as a novel or something. And I thought that was really interesting. Mm. <laughs> and I didn't know that was a script or, you know. Then I started reading all of um, um, Arthur Miller's and... I just started reading through all those American plays of the 50s and then I started reading Somerset Maugham short stories and things. And I just... And I you were, that, sorry, how old were you at this point? Um, I probably, I don't exaggerate, I think I was about 12 or 13. Wow. And 
Um, There's some intense plays to be reading at 12 yeah, or 13. Yeah, but I just, I felt like I understood them. Mm. I, when I look back, I think I've don't know how much of mine is, but I really felt I understood something. <laughs> but you connected something, to something in there. Something in them. And I used to go in my bedroom and um, dress up and go through <laughs> bits of them and stuff. So I think that that's basically where it all started. Yeah. And um, and in terms of going to NIDA, I went through school. My, um, my mother died during my exams at school when I was 17. And I remember thinking... Uh, apart from a lot of other things, um, I, I just um, I didn't know what I was going to do when the exams finished, and I I moved to Sydney and moved in with some friends who were at NIDA. I didn't know about NIDA, and I went to arts. I've got into Sydney College of the Arts, so I went to Sydney College of the Arts for the first year, which I loved, but knew then that what I really wanted to do. I'd then been exposed to NIDA and to the um, <clears throat> friends who were in stage management. And I'd met actors who they were going through. It was the year of um, Judy Davis and Mel Gibson. And so I met... Just a couple of... Met, yes, that was an amazing year. And uh, Robert Grubb. And so I met um, those people and just thought, oh, that's... I want to do what they're doing. And so that's really how I got introduced to NIDA and then auditioned and felt sure I'd get in. Like just um, didn't question that I wouldn't. I didn't realise it was competitive. I had no idea it was competitive. So I think I went in quite fearless and mm. and um, I got in and um, and so then began and it wasn't really till I even left in third year that I realized it was a profession you could work in I thought it was just something I was lucky enough to be doing mm. you know huh. and I still find it amazing that um, you know not amazing it is a profession and I wish it was was taken more seriously. I wish people did recognise it as not only a valid profession, but a really important profession, and uh, and that people should be paid um, well for it as well, because uh, um, majority of people need entertainment mm. and want it and are eating it like are just like devouring it, and then there's never enough of it. Mm. And uh, I think it's just so important. No, I agree. And there's more and more and more co-ops, brilliant work being done. I mean, I've just seen the production companies. Not that I mean, they do get paid a certain amount, but particular. And I mean, I've seen quite a few things in in Melbourne, not as much as I'd like to. But I know so many companies are working, and not just I'm not just talking theatre, but you know, um, web series that are being made and all the work that people are doing. Brilliant work some mm. incredible work and no one's being able to make money out of it at all yeah i know and that it's, uh, um, yeah it's, know that it's, trick. it's devastating mm. so people with lots of money if you're listening <laughs> invest in entertainment mm. so just going back to your personal journey do you remember the first time that you did uh, entertain or put on the acting kind of jacket if you like my mother, when she'd have um, friends over, and particularly when she was, she was she was very sick for about ten years, and girlfriends of hers would come over, and I would entertain them, and I think I did it out of wanting to make my mother happy. Yeah. But I would particularly play elderly women and women with accent like Hungarians, and <laughs> and I'd come in serving tea, and uh, I think that was when they appreciated so much. I got so much. Um, goodwill from these women 
um, from me sort of entering into this playful world with them. Um, and I think that's, I think as a child, you know, that was when I was younger. And, um, and so then, of course, you know, it's the obvious stuff, I guess, of doing plays at school and getting enormous, enormous satisfaction from doing that mm. on many levels, you know, of um, uh, primarily it was something that I felt at school at last I found something that I was passionate about and that I was allowed to do. There were only about four of us at the school. It was a country school, only about four of us who wanted to do drama. So um, one fabulous teacher kept letting us put on shows and get up at assembly and do things at assembly and all those things that kids at school um, get to do. But um, so I just always knew that that's what made me happy. Like that's what made me feel really fulfilled and satisfied. Um, but I didn't entertain that it was a a career, career that you yeah. got an agent and you got a career and that it was, I, it took me years to understand that concept. Mm. <laughs> what was it, do you think, that really dropped that in for you where you went, oh, fuck, I've been doing this for a while and I can make a living doing it? Um, well, I was very fortunate that when I left NIDA, um, Bill Shanahan, who was a very wonderful, wonderful agent, took me on. And it was more things he would say to me and encourage me. And um, I remember it was one day he said to me, there was a casting agent in Sydney. Um, there were only about two back then, two casting agents. And so she was a very well-known one. And he said to me, look, I've been putting you up for a lot of films and she won't see you. What, have you got a problem with this? this you know, have you had a history with this woman? I said, I don't even know who she is. I've never met her. I was in my 20s, <clears throat> early 20s. He said, look, I think you should go and meet with her and see if you've got a problem. So I said, okay. So I went in and I met with her and and uh, she was terribly nice to me. And I thought, well, why would we have a problem? And and then eventually I said, look, I'm, Bill just thought I should meet you in case we have a problem because you're not seeing me for anything. And she said, oh, no, darling, no. Well, that's that's because you don't have it. And I said, oh, I'm sorry. And she said, well, you don't have it. So you, you won't ever get any work in film. Oh, you, you'll be fine on stage, but if you don't have it, you won't, you won't get anywhere. And I just remember walking out and sort of feeling more confused than anything and wondering yeah. what it was and then went on this sort of quest to find out what it was <laughs> and trying to think out which actors had it and which didn't have it. And, and it shook me for a little while thinking I'm obviously missing something. But it was, it was a dawning process of, oh, this is a highly competitive field and if you don't have this special thing then you're not going to be in it. <laughs> um, and I spoke to Bill about it and he was, he just laughed and said, that's it, whatever that it is has nothing to do with whether you, it took me a while to talk to him about it actually, but um, that's rubbish, he sort of said. Mm. And, um, but she still wouldn't see me for anything because I didn't have it. But, uh, and I look back and I just think, wow, I got really quite affected by that. And it was a good lesson for me because it was made me uh, reflect a bit, analyse a bit, look at other people's work, try and work out what that thing is. And I just thought, in my mind, I think what she was talking about was about that was that X factor, that thing yeah, that, yeah. that some that casting agents believe that they have the the uh, insight and the, um, third eye. The, the third eye to be able to discover people who have this quality. Now there are definitely, I would say, some actors who, when you watch them. They do have some sort of uh, luminous quality mm, like that does transcend things, and that's what that it is, I guess. And um, but it certainly, in the end, didn't daunt me 
thinking, well, I may not have that quality, but I must have other qualities that will mean I can have a career working. So um, I sort of shook that off fairly quickly and sort of went, I'll admire those people for having that quality, but we can't all have that quality. And there are many other qualities to have, mm. <laughs> you know, that are... <laughs> It's such an esoteric thing as well. It was really. strange, but it did. I think that that's the that's the time that did make me think. Ah, oh, um, oh, this is a career, and that's how other people perceive it. And I realised then that it was a machine like any other business, and that people who are who see or view themselves anyway as being powerful in that machine are dictating who gets the work and who doesn't. And that was a bit of an eye opener for me because I just thought, oh, if you want to work you'll get work you know Mm. I was very naive and you did (laughs) well I did but I haven't always like there's always been periods where you're not working Mm, Um, but I mean of all the guests that I've had on here certainly doing some research on you and looking at your IMDB profile for example you've managed to work most years fairly consistently I'm sure there have been uh gaps where you've felt uneasy or wondered or had those existential crises that we all go through but from from someone being told that you don't have it to then build up the body of work that you have it's sort of almost like a big middle finger to that concept even except that i don't i must say i've i don't often play lead roles in films and I think that that it thing probably, I want to get away from talking about the it, but anyway, that it's, <laughs> it really didn't dominate my life. But um, I think for me, um, possibly one of the reasons I've been fortunate enough to work a lot was firstly, theatre was my first love. And I was just absolutely lucky that when I left NIDA, um, Sydney Theatre Company was in its very early days. And Richard Werrett was, had started begun the Sydney Theatre Company and it was in a small two rooms in King's Cross and I was very fortunately um, um, introduced there with a group of other actors Linda Cropper, Hugo Weaving, Paul Williams there were a few of us who were given contracts there back then where you could you they had to offer you a certain number of plays each, each year and you had to had to accept a certain number and I just accepted everything. So I just, you know, I'd be rehearsing during the day, one show, performing at night the next, and would just was in heaven. Was mm. just in heaven. So that sounds and, amazing. Um, so I was incredibly fortunate um, to do that and worked with amazing directors. And my main thing then was just to work with directors. I just wanted to learn from directors. So that was my thing. I've never wanted to be a star. I've never wanted to. Um, I've, I really haven't ever wanted, dreamed of Hollywood or. I'm American, I've been to America, I love America, but I, um, I've i never wanted to to do that. Mm. So that hasn't been a dream of mine, so I haven't had massive disappointments in that regard. Um, and I just wanted to, at that, through my 20s, I wanted to work with directors, and I got that opportunity to do that and worked with, you know, amazing directors. Mm. Um and then wanted to do more film and television, so eased my way into doing that. And But I remember one time thinking, I don't want to do any more theatre, I want to do television. So I said no to a number of plays, and nothing happened. Yeah. So, you know, I think it's an industry where just because you make a decision you want something, it doesn't happen. Mm. 
Um, it's also the busier you are, the busier you are. The busier you are, the busier you are. And, um, and just one job doesn't, we all know, lead to another. Mm. Um, there's a certain amount of luck that's just Yeah, I mean, I involved. did a job last Monday in the evening that was just actually a friend of Nick's called me up and asked me if I'd film something. And that's already turned into another job with someone Fantastic. completely separate to that, like independently. So bless you. Big thumbs up. <laughs> Big thumbs for up to you, Nick. Uh, uh, that's great. But that is the thing. And in the end, it's not so much people talk about networking, but it's more about people. Yeah. Like you meet people, you have a rapport with them, you understand each other, you understand something that they're trying to say. You're more likely to want to work with them then they're more likely to say to someone else, hey, really like their wavelength, have a look at them or something. And mm. it's about the people you meet. Totally. It's, um, and of course, you know, I'm talking about being offered jobs. I mean, I'm talking about when you're offered jobs and things. But of course, the times when I'm from a generation where you didn't make your own work. In fact, I remember being told when I left NIDA because I couldn't decide whether I wanted to do dance or drama or I want to do set building, or I like I loved the whole lot. Mm. And I remember told Heather, you have to decide. And I said, okay, well, I really want to be an actor. And then I remember saying, uh, the first thing I was ever off- offered was um, country practice. Wow, okay. Um, to play the vet. And I said, what does that mean? And they said, well, it's a soap opera, blah, 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 blah. I went, okay. And then I was also offered the city theatre come in. I said, well, what does that mean? And then I thought... They said, but you go one way, you'll have to stay that way. If you do soap, you will stay doing soap op- soap and television. And back then, um, it was never looked down on or anything, but it certainly wasn't, um, you know, when we were in the footsteps of Judy Davis, who was in, to a, us actresses who were a few years behind her, she was the epitome of, you know, brilliant dramatic acting. Mm. So I wanted that route. I wanted to sort of going that way so you took yourself people took themselves very seriously <laughs> as a young actress you took yourself too seriously I think and and I remember I being offered a that. commercial for $30,000 and turned it down because you did not do a commercial you didn't do commercials now I was a struck I'd had no money but I turned down $30,000 for a Kleenex in, and that would have been in the and I look back and I think well. what was I thinking it's crazy but and back then actors wouldn't do fashion spreads you Mm. wouldn't do um a vogue magazine fashion spread or something you know acting was acting publicity you only did publicity if it was to promote the show you were doing or the Mm. you know and you 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 know it was very different it's not so much the same branding as it is now no and i think well thank goodness too because i just think it frees it up for everybody now Mm. and um i certainly was never encouraged i wish i had been encouraged to or given that liberty to sort of think, oh, I'll make my own work or I'll write something. So it's only now in my 50s that I'm feeling like I'm starting to write. Mm. And But it's taken me all that time to feel that, yeah, I can do that. I've got something I could write mm. and I could say, even though I'm not a writer, I don't see why I can't. And, you know, so it's, um, I think it's so much healthier now, although it's harder probably, but it's healthier. Certainly difficult at times. It's difficult. And look, it wasn't easy back then. Look, there no. were plenty of actors who... You know, a lot of people, very few people I went through NIDA with are still in the industry. And, and it was there's very... only a handful of us who are still acting mm. in my acting course. And I could have, I could imagine um, that it was so male-oriented as well and probably tremendously misogynistic that it just 
added another layer of complexity and I'm sure there's still plenty of that bullshit that goes on now behind closed doors, behind the scenes, but it probably wouldn't have been so much behind closed doors or behind the scenes back then. It would have just been acceptable. Yeah, I really don't know. I um, and so which bit was acceptable? The the, the misogyny, the misogyny. Part of it. Maybe not <clears throat> acceptable, but accepted. Accepted. Yeah. Look, I think always there are people who are favoured, people who, um, and that's understandable. Um, certain directors, certain producers have particular people they love working with. I also think what is true even now is people directors get um, they develop a shorthand with a particular actor. So they want to keep using that actor. Um, and that's very understandable, particularly on a film shoot where, um, you know, time is the essence, money is the essence. So you want to be able to work with people who you know you can communicate with very effortlessly and quickly. And um, so it's, um, I mean, it makes sense, but it makes it more difficult for other mm. people who really want to have those opportunities and you wish they'd be given those opportunities, mm. you know. You certainly do see, and I know in when I've lived in share houses and things like that, the hot topic, and I live with people in the in the industry, but hot topics are often about, and it's always the same actors in different shows being used, you know, same directors, same producers, same writers. So it feels like a tremendous um, uh, difficulty to actually get a foot in the door. It's so hard. Mm. And also the other disappointing thing is that um, not that I want to take away from any of those actors who, you no, know, they're because they're wonderful. Actors, yeah. But one of the reasons they're also so wonderful is they kept, they always get to exercise that muscle. Mm. So the acting muscle, so to speak, is constantly being exercised. So they're only going to get better and better and better at it, which makes the chasm even greater for the actors <laughs> yeah. who don't get to do it because they're not getting to exercise that. So therefore, when they get an opportunity, they're possibly not, you know, as... Um, uh, prepared or feel mm. as prepared whether they are or not they may not feel as secure as, or as prepared so it's and which is why it's also really important I guess now for actors who aren't working um, to keep their skills up and to do classes, sports, and, classes and things and they the difficult thing is that a lot of the classes are very expensive <laughs> yes so it is an interesting you know, uh, paradigm um, yeah um, one thing you said before uh, was that it's never been your dream to go and live in America, go to Hollywood, be a star, which brings up a multitude of questions in my mind. One of the things that I'm quite fascinated with is what people's definition of success is, because so much, I think, especially here, you're not successful unless you've gone over to LA and and made a name for yourself and um, become the next Kate Blanchett or um, Russell Crowe or Hmm. whomever it is at the moment. Um, so it's quite refreshing to hear someone who I perceive as being quite successful, who's not that that's not a benchmark for them. So what was, or what is your dream? Um, well, I find it, it, it's a tricky one, isn't it? I mean, success in itself, I find interesting because I find it very hard to uh, differentiate between personal and, and uh, professional success. I find them completely integrated. And I think, I mean, if you just listen to any interviews with any famous people, um, there's often, not any of them, clearly, but with a number, there's a point sometimes in their life where they go, they're surrounded by all this wealth and acclaim and 
and they're feeling lost. Mm, and means uh, nothing. I think mental health is basically my, <laughs> my definition of success. Yeah, right. I think if you can stay in any business, in any industry, and keep loving it, and keep your mental health. I think mental health is one of the most, um, uh, just ignored topics in a lot of industries. But I think for me, uh, I feel successful. I can feel very successful on a day-to-day moment. Mm. (laughs) Um, I wouldn't call it success, but I can be aware that I'm walking around in a world where I feel grateful that I've um, overcome many obstacles in my life and I have um, people I love and people who are around me who I love and I have a work job that I love and to me that is I can't imagine more success than that. Mm. But in terms of professional success, of course it's nice to be, everyone loves to be acknowledged publicly, people love to be acknowledged by their friends and but along with that, it's never that simple because even public acknowledgement comes with criticism, comes with people's personal views of that, comes with... And if you don't think that, then you're completely narcissistic, mm. <laughs> I think. So I think that for me, I, that wasn't quite your question, was it? Um, oh, what do okay. I dream of? Um, look, my at my age, I'm nearly 57, and I think my dream... I would love to have a holiday with my family somewhere. My dream is to, I've never had a family holiday. I've got two boys. We've never been overseas with them or, you know, I would love that. That's a dream of mine. A dream of mine is, I have a lot of dreams for them in terms of them, you know, having fulfilling lives. Mm. But for me personally, um, it's, I love work. I love working and my dream I suppose is to keep working but to work on things which I think challenge me in 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 great ways and I think the greatest challenges always are um uh, there was a book called I'm jumping all over the place here but the book called The Tree of Man when I was growing up it was a um made by Time Life magazine Mm -hmm. and it was just journalist photographs black and white photographs ranging from the 1920s right through to back then which was the 70s and there were all those time life photos and they were just amazing faces of people you know from Nebraska in the mid you know to to China and and women giving birth and and people landing on outer space places you know and I just remember thinking if I can somehow um, gain insights into some of those sorts of lives and um, have the opportunity to try and play some of those people, try and um, invest in discovering what they, how they think and how they might feel. And that is kind of success to me. Mm. And if I can do that either in a structured way or a non-structured way, and if some people, I can share that with people, whether it's in a tiny audience of a couple of people or a large audience, then, and that, I don't tell them how to think or feel, but they start to think or feel, then that to me is, does that sound wanky? But (laughs) but that to me is kind of, is kind of a feeling of success. Mm. And then you can, the beautiful thing then is that you can walk off stage and feel successful or you can go home afterwards or you can get up in the morning and feel successful because, so success can be very 
close mm. and not a distant thing. And I think often we think of success as something we're aiming for, something that if only we had, if only we could ex- experience it. Um, and that might sound a bit too humble, <laughs> but it is it is how I feel. That sounds very sincere. And I mean, last year I was it was a great honour um, awarded. Um, an award for Strictly Ballroom and I got up and I accepted the award and um, and I remember thinking afterwards I said this is a weird feeling it wasn't what I was imagining the feeling I've, I've won some other awards and it's been a nice sort of acknowledgement but it wasn't the feeling that I was expecting and I thought I realised the feeling of doing the show is so much greater than getting an award for it mm. and I was very appreciative for it, but didn't get the high that I get from doing the show. Mm. So maybe that's, maybe I should investigate that. Maybe I'm being, um, <laughs> not accepting something there. But anyway. I'm trying, I'm just trying to track with you. And it feels to me like this uh, idea of affecting people and of, um, creating a, a community or a commonality of uh, experience is something that's quite important yeah. for you. I think so. I think, I think you've, that's absolutely right. I think you're right. And I think that that's any job I do. I love to um, ensure that the cast in particular uh, f- find ways to bring us together. I always, if I feel that there's people being left out or people I do try and um, I do try actively to try and make sure that there's a community mm. um and for me i think look if i wasn't acting i think i would have i would love to have become a psycholo- psychologist or something mm. so i think i'm more in- i'm really in terms of acting more interested in maybe it's that box of books that i opened <laughs> was uh one interested me was pandora's how people, box of books how people lived in another culture to mine and how they spoke differently and how they um the things that made them upset and what was important and mm. that sort of interests me. Mm. What? Are you a religious person at all? Not religious, no. I wasn't brought up with any religious um, background. My father my father was a Quaker, which is a religious um, construct. However, there's many different you know, degrees of any religion and he was... Um, a wonderful wonderful man and although he wasn't didn't follow any doctrine or anything he certainly lived by the Quaker principles which are basically of pacifism so he was a complete pacifist so he he was a conscientious objector of the war and um, he planted he was a, became a forester and planted trees all over the world which is why we traveled and he just wanted to you know he was talking you know 50 years ago about trees the importance of trees and Mm. what was going to happen to the environment if we didn't plant trees and he um was a unique man and a very loving man and I think that I mean very much who I am and the way I feel and think now as I get older particularly um is very very influenced by him so I'm not religious no but I would say I'm spirit I have a spiritual Mm. um life which is very much to do with my parents and I felt a very strong connection with them when I was young 
and the connection was through meditation in a way and so we used to meditate together my father and I and I wow. think that so I feel like my peace or my um, whatever you want to call your spiritual religion that feeling I suppose for people who pray or for people who um, whatever that is that oneness with God or with your own essence or whatever I um, I feel I can access that quite quickly mm. through my um, my parents. Do you believe in a God or a higher power or uh, an energetic experience that is more than just people? Con- constantly um, and differently all the time. Uh, I don't. When I say I don't believe in God, I don't have any. I I don't have any. Uh, you don't believe in a viewpoint. white man in clouds. No, I don't believe in. I don't even like using the word believe, but I don't think of God. I don't think of the word God. I don't think of God. But I do, I think of the experience Mm. of a feeling of oneness, basically, which I suppose is a bit more the Buddhist line than the... But I do, um, I do feel great peace when I can access, as the Quakers would say, um, they don't have a mediator between them and their spiritual life or experience and so but each person has a light within them basically so that each person has the the essence the seed the light or whatever you want to call it where a person if they can access it can go to where they find um can not find but experience that absolute transcendent if you want to call it but that absolute peace Mm. and um i like to think that everyone has the capability of of accessing that and so many things get in the way of us being able to access it particularly our thoughts and um and allowing other people's thoughts to invade our thoughts <laughs> and uh, that make can make it very difficult and i think mm. a lot of people struggle with that and um uh but i think people are very very aware of the importance of being able to access that for their own health and for their enjoyment of life um, I remember distinctly I had breast cancer about uh, it was 10 years ago now and the prognosis wasn't great and um, I had two very small children and people would look at me with great concern and people would tell you their stories about oh my sister died or my you know, and, and it was it was such an on uh, onslaught of other people's fears mm. and other people's desires to help and other people's and I remember then quite clearly thinking um, everyone is so well-meaning. Everyone is so well-meaning. But if you allow them, their thoughts, to invade yours, then there's not much chance of healing, you know. Mm. So it was very much a learning to accept but protect at the same time. And um, and that was a great thing to learn. Mm. That was actually really helpful. And then not taking on other people's energy. And... Uh, and that was, and I think, oh, if I hadn't experienced breast cancer, I may not have um, experienced that. So um, that was great. Mm. And I remember also lying, having when I was having radiation, um, looking at the machine and thinking, I'll just look at the machine and observe the machine and think about the, you know, just stay present and be there. So I think, in the end, we are all. I'm sounding very spiritual here, but in the end, we are all just, we we are walking around with our histories and we are it. I mean, this is it, just Mm. our bodies and our, everything that's contained within them. And we can't often control and rarely can we control necessarily the things that happen to us, 
but we can really only control the way we respond to them and the yeah. way we react to them. So, um, and I think that's something that I now am conscious of. No matter what happens in my life, I try and uh, think, okay, this is the situation. This is what's happening. How how am I responding to it? Mm. And is that a helpful way, or is that a detrimental way to either other people or to myself? Mm. Big lesson for me lately has been pretty much exactly what you're saying, which is that you can only control how much you can give. You can't control how it's going to be received. You can't control what you're going to get. Mm. All you can really control is what, you, what you're willing to put out yeah. and how vulnerable or how much of yourself you're willing to put out. Absolutely. It's a big and it's a hard thing to learn. And mm. it's, and const, it's constant. It's not like you ever learn how to do no. that. I think that all of human life, that's... You go through that your whole life, you know. I see people, you know, it doesn't matter how old you are, that's the thing that um, I always find it interesting. People say, just be truthful, be truthful, you know, say what you, <laughs> say what you mean, be really honest. And I think if we all walked around just being absolutely honest, then we'd constantly get back, not what we <laughs> hope to get back, you know. So I think that whole thing of it's, it's also then being sure of what honesty is mm. and what before you speak or before you say something that could be hurtful to someone else just because you think you're being honest look at where that thought's coming from mm -hmm. you know just because you think it's honest in that moment and that instant it may not be if mm. you stop and think about it so yeah and it's also if are you acting from that place of fear that you're talking about before place exactly um in being honest in inverted yeah. commas that's absolutely right i think you're right but you trace back to where that's coming from it's coming from fear or from anger or for then it's probably best not to be honest at that moment <laughs> yeah and that may not be authentically honest it may just be a reaction to something that's happened or that's been triggered yeah or something that's been triggered yeah, yeah. um what do you think the meaning of all this is then we've kind of gone from this idea of community and and um, effect really affecting people and you can kind of i guess like kind of get a flavor of how that fits in now like understanding a bit more about your family and a sort of perpetual motion of traveling around with your parents what do you think um what do you think the meaning of all of this life is, of life is yeah. oh, i have no idea <laughs> <laughs> the meaning of life oh goodness oh look i don't know what the meaning of life is i've got no idea um but i think that it's a word, obviously, which is become, you know, used a lot at the moment. I mean, a few words which are people being their authentic self. The word authentic is being used a lot. And uh, the word compassion starts to become very prevalent at the moment. But they're two very, um, actually, before they sort of get bastardized, they're actually really <laughs> wonderful words. Mm. And what goes behind those words. And um, I think for individuals to... Um, no matter what you do, to feel that you're being authentic to yourself is obviously a wonderful feeling for people individually. Um, and I think that compassion, in the end, compassion for yourself first is probably essential in the meaning of life. Like if you can't find compassion for yourself, then it's very difficult for people to find it for other people. Mm. And compassion is obviously a, a big word, what that means, but I think it's... I think basically in the end the meaning of it all is um, 
you know, in amongst all the millions of things we want to do and achieve and the people we want to have relationships with, the people who we want to help, the people we want to, you know, never see again, the people, you know, <laughs> all those things that make up our life. I think in the end it is um, right to the very end being compassionate towards yourself and towards other people. I just think, I think you get an enormous amount back if you do those try and do those two things even for a second even for a moment even um and be as present as you can really um i had a little situation the other day i was asked if i'd um do some work with some people who are working in the corporate field and just to help them with confidence and i'd never done anything like this before and i was working with this lovely young woman or and she was finding it difficult to recall occasions at work where she felt any joy with her work so because we couldn't find it internally I said okay well let's look around this room and see if you can find anything in this room that you haven't really looked at before and we'll go and look at it I said sometimes you can find joy through wonderment and looking out rather than in if you can't find it in let's look out so we walked around the room it was a board room with a big table and chairs and there was a water cooler and a, a pot plant and she said oh I don't think I've ever really looked at that pot plant before and I said okay let's go and have a look at it it was a fern and I said just look at the don't don't judge it just look at it and we looked at the fronds and we looked at the colors and then I said now I want you to find something else in the room that has a relationship to this fern and she looked around and she sort of didn't quite know what to say and then I said and I looked at her and I'd been looking at her for a couple of hours but didn't realize she was wearing a, a jersey sort of jumper cardigan thing with little flowers on it and in between every, each flower was a fern a fern frond huh. And I said to her, just look, look at your shoulder. And she looked down and I was, we were in a bare room really, except for this and these two ferns. And I can't tell you how excited we both were. <laughs> <laughs> it was like magic had happened. And we were just, I went, oh my God, there's a fern on your shoulder. And she just couldn't believe it either. And we were just like, um, so excited. And I said, wow, look, that's pretty amazing that there's a fern on your, on your clothes and there's also a fern there. But I said, you know, that's the power of actually looking. Because, you know, if you look anywhere and really look without judgment, you will eventually find something else that relates to it. Because in the end, we all relate to different things. And just like if you spend enough time listening to a person, you'll find something you relate to. Mm. Just as we're talking, yeah. so much of what you have said, I, I feel like, oh, yes, I understand. I get that. I get mm, that. You know? So I think in the meaning of it all, yes, compassion, but it's also being and not trying to be but just being sometimes is probably one of the best things you can do in amongst it all is to stop and just look mm. and i try and exercise that and i'm on the tram or i'll just look at faces and not even wonder too much about the person just look at them and then try and find a relationship that someone else has with that person not a complex one just even the color of the eyes or the way the hairs and then i go back and look at them again and go Wow, I wonder what they've done in their life. And, it, and you, I find I can never be bored or not without something to, mm. um, you know, wonder about. So I do think that wonderment, when people can't find, uh, you know, particularly when you're out of work, when you can't find work and you can't find the motivation to create something like you have, and what you're doing and if you don't know what you're good at and you can't find it just start looking just start looking even around your room start looking about and through that you discover i think 
look through your drawers and then you start to see the things that we take for granted. You go, oh, I'm the sort of person who collects blue jumpers or um, that's interesting. <laughs> I didn't know that about me. Or you start to discover things about yourself and say, okay, well, what could I do with this knowledge about myself? What could I do? What could I do? So you start thinking creatively rather than thinking, I've got to sit down and write a script or I've got to come up with an idea for something. Look at what is in your world and you'll and discover what you, that becomes your authentic way of then creating something mm. not adopting someone else's but you know i mean i just look around this room and there's so much the music and the all the um you know blanket room sticky tape to the wall and the blanket sticky tape well that in itself is kind of interesting <laughs> <laughs> you know so cubby houses and all sorts of things come to mind but um so you know i think that you know we do spend a lot of time now on our phones and um I was at a meeting at the school the other day and they were talking about studying for exams and saying, you know, very seriously saying, now we know a lot of kids cannot be without holding their phones and it's very important if you want to study, you've got to put your phone down and a lot of kids cannot go for more than five minutes without picking it up and checking and checking and checking. So they were teaching us as parents how to help our children get weaned off their phone for study and how you've got to put the phone a little bit further away on the table, a little bit further away on the table, eventually take it out of the room, bring it back in, take it out of the room, bring it back in. And I thought this can't be true, but apparently it is. That's insane. And it's a, you know, kids in strollers now are on their prams. They've, you know, for a while there, it was just the coffee cups that the parents had on their strollers and now it's got an iPad holder. And there was a child recently in a doctor's surgery and there was a fish tank and uh, it was a toddler and raced, ran up to have a look at the fish in the fish tank. And after it had a good look at the fish swimming around, tried to swipe the, um, swipe <laughs> the glass the... <laughs> as if wanting to change the scenery. And uh, which I thought wow. was amazing. But, <laughs> um, but I think it's really obviously important to have balance. But, you know, the, the amazing tools we've got. But mm. if we rely on technology, but it creates we will never be satisfied if we rely... It will change so much faster than we can. Yeah. And so we really need to balance our, our, our um, skills of observation and just being in life balanced mm. with being in, because that does involve a very different, um, looking at a screen involves a very different sort of process. Mm. You're a human being, not a human doing. Yeah. Place We're very busy doing. Yeah. Um, but there, it all just comes back to mental health, I think. I just think. Mm. Well, compassion for yourself, yeah. as you were saying, and, yeah. and maintaining a sense of wonder and, and seeing the magic, yeah. not losing that fearlessness and that childlike wonder. And yeah. Particularly um, as you're getting older, like I'm getting, you know, headed towards 60 and I don't, I don't mind getting older. I'm not, um, I'm not afraid of it. Um, but I certainly don't want to get old. I don't, you know, that if I had a fear, that would be it, that I, not a fear, but just a warning that... You mean like um, physically, mentally kind Yeah, of. I don't want to sit in a... I mean, I'll have to sit eventually, <laughs> <laughs> probably. But, I mean, I just want to be with young people. I mean, mm. I, I must say, I just love the company of younger people and I want to stay energetic internally if not if i can't mm. do it externally i want to stay 
you know, connected and, and energetic. We'll find yeah. out what the magic potion that yeah. Mick Jagger is um, oh my God. drinking. Yes. Well, I'm sure it's more than one potion. No. <laughs> <laughs> and it's probably not just drinking it. Um, but, um, before, I, before we do bring this to a nice little tied-up bow, I wanted to ask you about one of your credits on IMDb that really hit me, and that was that you were in an episode of The Ferals. Why, why do you say that? Well, that was a show that I watched growing up. And Did you really? Yeah. Um, I was probably at the older end of the target right. demographic, um, but I've never met someone who, uh, who, actually worked, worked on who, who actually worked on that show. Well, I think I did only do one episode. I don't think I was on it for much, but it was really fun. I remember um, it was great fun. I can't remember who directed that episode in particular. What was Rattus like? Oh, charming. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, they were gorgeous. I mean, they were fantastic characters. Yeah. They were wonderful. But I really was there only one episode, so it was, and it was a long time ago. Mm. But I do remember doing it. It was, it was, it was great. <laughs> but, I mean, there again, children's stuff. Oh, my God. Mm. Love, love, love doing children's. Well, you did Spellbinder for Spellbinder. years. I still get, you know, it's, you know, people are now in their late 20s, 30s who watched Spellbinder. But, oh, it's great doing stuff within four kids mm. just great yeah i could imagine that that would be tremendously uh, oh, fun. there comes that really word again fun. tremendously Tremendous, uh gratifying tremendously, tremendously. Yeah. No, no, magnificent great. magnificently yes um, great. before we do wrap it up there's one question i like to ask everyone right at the end which is what makes you silly oh, what makes me silly either what turns you into a silly person or what is it um, about you what is it about me i look i love um I'd say at work, I'm pretty silly at work. I'm being terribly serious today. But no, I'm pretty silly at work. I think um, oh, it's probably a question for other people. Um, I would say um, what happens at work that we – oh, gosh, it's hard to answer, isn't it? But I do feel the majority of my day I'm being pretty silly. Um, it's Usually it's with the people I'm working with. I um, – I suppose in rehearsals, I love rehearsals because particularly if you've got a director who encourages it, I think that that's when through improvisation and through that's where you find your sense of humour and and word play and word game, like you just play off what the person before has given you, go off on a different tangent and you, um, and I'd like doing that just in the day to day as well. So I suppose I'm not a really silly person or anything, but I think that when I'm, working with a group of people and in an environment where you feel you can um, have fun. I just love it. Mm. Just, And it's easier to be silly, I guess, when you're also playing another character because mm. I wouldn't call myself a silly person, whereas I find it very, very easy to access being silly in a rehearsal room. So I think that's to do with the feeling you're in a creative atmosphere where you're allowed to do things that may be inappropriate even or, or um, and you can say things that aren't going to hurt the person because you, there's a there's a common um, a, a agreement that you're kind of sparring or in you're, character. you're in character or that you're discovering stuff and it and you you can get away with it. Mm. Was there anything in particular that sp looked like something sprang to mind there? Um, not in particular but uh, I, I do love having fun at work. Like mm. I certainly, um, we do a lot of, at, even at Strictly, we, you know, we do a lot of little um, video clips and things 
um, doing fun stuff and, you know, we just muck around a lot, really. Mm. And doing old Hungarian women voices. Old Hungarian women and stuff like that. But, uh, yeah, and I like being with silly people. Mm. I like to connect. I think, you know, I think some people connect very strongly with their identity of pain and connect very closely with some people through their identity with pain and some people through their identity with being having f- uh, with joy mm. and I think I've been in situations definitely where I've experienced pain and you know loss and so- all sorts of things but I think I identify when I see when I'm with people who identify themselves more with joy and silliness I lock it click into that so I think that's more the thing depends mm. who I'm with as to how silly I'm allowed to get. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think you gauge it off the other person. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Well, this is certainly the uh, the silliest uh, podcast studio. Um, I love it. I've been in. Uh, I spent the whole time looking at this, um, apart from you, at this shirt, which is quite crumpled, <laughs> but it looks far too small for you. Is that your shirt? Oh, it's just all, I suppose it's just very crumpled. It's quite crumpled and it's kind of... I was it's, wondering it's, whose it was, it, but it is yours. It's vaguely hanging on off a hanger. But I love this. I love this room. Mm, Pete, the audience is getting a, a, a very small flavour week by week of what's Have you described this room to your audience? No. No, that, mm. there's there's like a picture that goes up every oh, week. Okay, it's great. got his bed unmade right. generally in the right. background. That's great. Um, I love it. And uh, I think a few people have made reference to the odds and ends that are around oh, I really like it. but maybe it will become a relic of this uh mm-hmm. of this podcast one day i think it's fantastic well thank you so much oh, thank Heather. you that's been an absolute pleasure enjoyable. thank you it's been tremendously magnificently amazing stupendous stupendous i've loved every minute thank you so much thank you well what an absolute delight Uh, that interview was thank you so much heather for truncating your 35 year career into a one hour ramble with me it certainly means a lot to have someone uh, of your magnitude supporting my podcast so thank you and now on to the competition the first ever coming up next competition the inaugural coming up next competition winner of the coming up next hockey jersey for sharing my interview with Samuel Johnson. The winner is Tony Adams. And you can find Tony on Twitter at TonyAdams2002. Tony, please get in touch via Facebook. Send me a message uh, via the Coming Up Next Facebook page or a direct message on Twitter to let me know how I can get this fine, pristine Coming Up Next hockey jersey your way. And for anyone else who entered who might be interested in, uh, in supporting coming up next in a financial way, I will be putting some up online to, for purchase in the coming days. So stick around, stay tuned, keep posted on the Facebook. And coming up next, friends, you asked for more people outside of the entertainment industry and I am delivering immediately. Well, it was a couple of weeks ago, but I am delivering nonetheless. Uh, Next week's guest is someone who has known me my entire life, has known my brother uh, his entire life. He's a very dear family friend of ours and follows his heart and his passion as an architect. He and his wife, having established their own style and their own unique flavor, have established quite a remarkable architecture studio and it is a great joy for me to have him sitting in the hot seat opposite me. Coming up next, Warwick Mahaley. 
Enjoy the sunshine, friends. It's going to change in a minute. I mean, that is if you are in Melbourne. And I'll see you next week. Uh, hear you next week. Well, I, we've, we've done this before.